me and take out your Bibles and turn to um, Acts chapter 18. As we prepare to hear God speak to us through his word, let's go and ask for his help. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. For just a moment as we begin, I want us to get back uh, to basics. Uh, It's so easy when we've been concentrating week after week on individual trees to lose sight of the forest. And and I think it's important uh, to step back and, and see the big picture once again before we go forward. Now, kids, remember, we've been talking about a good way to see the scriptures are promises made and promises kept. And the main promise, of course, is the promise of God that that I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's all fulfilled through Jesus, as we know that Paul writes to the Corinthian church that all the promises of God are yes in him. And so... The scripture is all about Jesus. In the Old Testament, he's predicted. In in the Gospels, he's revealed. In the Acts, where we are now, he is preached. In the epistles or the letters, he is explained. And in Revelation, he is expected. Here we are in the book of Acts, written around the early 60s AD. And I want to, to, to remind us of the purposes. Why is Acts in our Bible. Well, literarily, to provide a transition between the four Gospels and the letters to the churches and letters to individuals. Historically, it's there to record the history of the establishment and expansion of the church, in particular, the history of the mission of the early church. And in doing so, it provides a background for the letters. And practically, just like all of Scripture, it is to edify believers to edify, to strengthen you and me, to strengthen our faith by showing that Christianity is grounded not in what we do for God. I mean, think about how many people in America think Christianity is somehow, first and foremost, what we do for God, or at least what we're trying to do for God. My friends, that that is the complete opposite of the heart of Christianity, the acts of God in history. It's about what God does. And so Acts is about proclaiming good news, not offering good advice. It shows us that the gospel proclaimed then is the same gospel proclaimed now. We've seen how to to break up these 28 chapters of Acts in its structure. It could be personally through Peter first and then Paul. It could be geographically first in Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It could go to people groups demographically, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. And if you take into account Luke's progress reports, it's progressively as the gospel grows and expands. Now remember, Acts is the selective record of all that Jesus continued to do and teach, now by his Holy Spirit in the church, founded by him through the apostles. You see, With Acts, we look back at what God has done through Jesus Christ. And we look ahead 
as to what God is doing and will do by His Spirit. You see, Acts orients us to the Word of God and to the work of God, and in doing so, it it serves as an anchor as well as an engine. In other words, Acts, just like all of God's Word, should hold us back to faithful doctrine, Hold us back. Prevent us from going off the reservation. Prevent us from going off the rails. It holds us back to what is true. But it also pushes us forward in mission, in getting the word out to others about Jesus. Now remember what I just said. Acts is a selective record. Remember at the end of John, he writes, if everything that Jesus did was recorded, we wouldn't have enough libraries in the whole world to put that kind of information. Well, again, Acts is a selective record. And so we've got to ask, well, why did Luke include this? Because it's an interesting narrative account in Acts here. It's 10 verses. As Paul moves from ministry in Corinth or the Roman province of Achaia, where he spends, as we know, 18 months at least, a year and a half, to his ministry in Ephesus, where he'll spend at least two years. Remember how Acts starts. Let me remind you of how Acts starts. In the first book, O Theophilus, that's Luke writing, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. And remember at the beginning of Luke, he writes to Theophilus and he says, I am writing this narrative account and it's going to be an orderly account. Why? So you can have certainty. And again, that's going to be helpful for us to get certainty. And we see that in this selective record of all that Jesus continues to do and teach. Indeed, this is not just historical. It's far more than just historical. It's living and active. It is here to inform us and to strengthen our faith. Now, our text before us can be broken down, I think, into two major sections. Traveling and teaching, the traveling of Paul and the teaching of Apollos. And with that said, in the words of Paul in his first letter to the Corinthian church, which we just heard a moment ago, read, we're going to hear it again. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And so let's look at our text to see how God gave the growth through the ministries of both Paul and Apollos. Join with me now as I read verses 18 through 23. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Syncre he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there, but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church, and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, 
through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul is in Corinth, and remember, God's protection, God's promise of protection was seen through through his personal friends and and public servants. Remember, the, the, the lawsuit, as it were, against Paul is dismissed by Gallio, the proconsul. And so now Paul and his ministry are, as it were, shielded by the, straight, uh, the state. Paul's able to continue his ministry. I mean, there's religious liberty and there's religious freedom. It's a good purpose for the state to enable the church, as we pray, to live quiet and peaceful lives with all godliness, with all dignity. We read about Paul taking this vow. It's the beginning of the end of a Nazareth vow, a vow of purity. And and most scholars are are thinking here, Paul has had the vision to Macedonia, the vision in, in, um, in Corinth, and he's asking God for success at the beginning of that vow, and now he's giving thanks. He's giving thanks. He's asking, he's petitioning God for success, and now he's looking back and thanking God for success through this vow. And as we read, they head to Ephesus, a leading city in the province of Asia, politically and economically, 250,000 people, at the time, the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Remember earlier, Paul had wanted to go into Asia, where Ephesus is located, but he had been prevented by the Holy Spirit. But now, he's permitted. And he's teaching in the synagogue, and there's a positive response. He's asked to stay longer. But instead, he makes a hasty departure. We think he's probably wanting to get to Jerusalem in time for Passover, and he's got to leave at a certain time to take advantage of the the sailing patterns in the Mediterranean at that time of year. And when he makes the statement, I will return to you if God wills. It's not like Douglas MacArthur, remember in World War II, I shall return No, Paul is not arrogant and confident like MacArthur at the time. No, he says, if God wills, I shall return. And indeed, God wills. But this is where personal desires and and divine guidance so interact that Paul knows that our plans can can only work if they're part of God's sovereign providence, the sovereign design of God. And therefore, with that statement, I will return to you if God wills. Paul can be more flexible and he can be more confident about the future. Why? Because it's in God's hands and he can be more thankful about the past. You see how an awareness of God's sovereignty helps us, right? That God is not only great and powerful, but he's good and wise. And so we can rest assured. We can be flexible as he directs our paths. We can can seize opportunities before us instead of kicking down doors. We can wait, as it were, for the doors to open. And again, to be more thankful about the past. Well, they leave Ephesus, and his goal is to get back to Antioch in Syria, where he was sent out, he and Barnabas, at the first. He wants also to get back to the church in Jerusalem, most likely for Passover. So he leaves Caesarea, he goes 
up to Jerusalem and down to Antioch. You don't see Jerusalem mentioned, but everybody believes that when that language of going up and going down is used, it's talking about heading to Jerusalem. Paul finally arrives in Antioch of Syria, and he, and he gives a report to the church that had first sent him off. Here's Paul modeling uh, good, considerate communication back to the church. He's promoting unity of the body of Christ. He's promoting the continuity of the mission. It's kind of like if we were the sending church for, uh, say, Mark and Sarah Carey, that they would come back to us from the foreign mission field and give us a report, and there would be a strengthening of the communication and there would be a strengthening of the unity of the body. Now notice, in most of your Bibles, uh, there's not a split between um, uh, verse 22 and 23, but that's actually where the second missionary journey ends and the third missionary journey begins, right there between verses 22 and 23. And notice how Paul, excuse me, Luke continues. After spending some time there, he departed and went from place to place, from one place to the next throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul is in transit. Paul is traveling. He's on the road. And Luke provides a great summary statement of Paul's mission at this time, strengthening all the disciples. You see, Paul doesn't abandon what he began. He'll write to the Philippian church, right? He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And in a way, he's doing that. These churches in this region he established in the first missionary journey. They were consolidated a bit in the second missionary journey. And now he's going back. He's working his way to Ephesus, but he's going back through regions where he had been. He shores up believers in order to face persecution from the outside and to face false teaching from the inside. As you read Paul's letters, we get this understanding that for him, when he encountered the church and disciples that were immature, that hadn't grown up, it was, it was anguish, a parental anguish. He longed for them to grow and mature. But oh, when there was growth, when there was evidence of maturity, it was his highest joy. Think about the letters Paul writes to the churches. We loved you so much that we not only proclaimed the gospel, but we shared our very lives. Why? Because you had become so dear to us. What an example. What a model for us. Strengthened. And what... What would capture how they are strengthened or in what are they strengthened? Remember Paul in 2 Timothy? He knows he's going to be headed to depart. He's going to, to Rome. He's writing Timothy and he says, You then, my child, be strengthened, what? By the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Right? Because when he writes to Titus, he says, the grace of God that has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. What does it do? It enables you to say no to ungodliness. To no to worldly passions. And yes to righteousness. So Paul 
as he strengthens all the disciples, he's going to be strengthening them in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So the third missionary journey has begun. Now Luke seems to interrupt this narrative account of Paul's third missionary journey to catch us catches up on the work of Apollos in Ephesus and Corinth in the interval between Paul's visits. So let's head back now to Ephesus where we see Apollos teaching. Join with me now as I read beginning in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures, He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, that's where Corinth is located, The brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Who's Apollos? He's a Jew, we read, from Alexandria, Egypt. Remember Alexandria, ancient Alexandria, the library, the museum, the educational facilities. It's where the Jewish scholars produced the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. It's where later Philo, the well-known philosopher, was from and served. Now, the grid through which we're going to explore this section is the grid of competence, of character, and of calling. I remember one of my classes in seminary, a practical theology class where we were preparing for ordained ministry, the the instructor, the professor, spoke of competence, character, and calling over and over again. Competence, character, and calling. And the same way with the presbytery. When I came out here, the presbytery had to evaluate me up one side and down the other on my competence on my character, and on my calling. So let's look first at his competence, and we see that in verses 24 and 25. It's a description of Apollos' gifting, his skills. He's eloquent, or he's learned. And his specific competence is the Scriptures. He's mighty in the Scriptures. He's instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, we read. I mean, Apollos is in Alexandria. He grows up there. The educational facilities. He's a Jew. He's he's got all the resources. And he's obviously gifted. He's an intellectual. He's able to speak well. But listen how verse 25. Let's read 25. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. Now, if if verse 25 had ended there, uh, it would be simple. But we see a qualification. We see a potential lack here. Though he knew only the baptism of John. Well, 
lots and lots of pages are written by commentators on what on earth does this mean? I'm so thankful for the doctrine of the perspicuity of Scripture, which says basically that all things in Scripture are not alike easy to understand. All things in Scripture are not clear in and of themselves, but of course it goes on to say anything necessary for salvation is, is made clear and made simple. But here, what does this mean? He knew only the baptism of John. Well, after a bit of study, this is what I've concluded. Apollos is, is a knowledgeable, fervent disciple of the teachings of John the Baptist who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't yet presently understand the saving significance of the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's, he's unaware as to what Pentecost means. You see, the way of the Lord that he knows is not the gospel, but it's, it's God's way of salvation set forth in the promises of the Old Testament. You see, Apollos is preaching boldly from his perspective that he has of promise and preparation. Um, it's almost like this. If you go back to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, and you read verse 25, and it's a familiar passage. We read this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. He's got the promise. He's got the preparation. But then Ezekiel 36 continues, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. It's as if for, for Apollos, verse 25 had occurred, but not yet. He didn't know about verses 26 and 27. Well, what happened? What happened to Apollos? He was taught. He was taught, and we'll speak that in just a minute, who he was taught by. He was taught. He needed and received something. And in my study, I ran across these comments from a Lloyd John Ogilvie, a Presbyterian pastor who had been chaplain of the U.S. Senate for years. And in commenting on this particular section with Apollos and what he's taught by Priscilla and Aquila, he says this. He needed and received what all religious people desperately need an experience of the substitutionary sacrifice of Calvary as the only basis of righteousness with the Lord and an infusion of his spirit as the only source of power to live as he meant it to be lived. Now, as I heard, as I read this and thought about this, I, I, I thought of Saul also. Religious, fervent, bold, educated, knowledgeable. And he knew, in one sense, of the ways of Jesus, and he thought they were wrong. And he was going to take care of that, right, by helping to extinguish this Jewish sect. That's why he was headed to Damascus. But he met the Lord Jesus Christ. And without being dogmatic on this, because you can't be, but I think that's what's going on here, is, is he's fervent in spirit, but he doesn't yet have the Holy Spirit. So that's the competence of Apollos. Let's look at the character of Apollos, the one 
being taught. And as important as competence is, character, of course, is far more important. If you look at the qualifications for elders in Scripture, there's one competency, able to teach. But everything else is character. And what is the aspect of, of, of his character that's being highlighted here? What is it? It's he's able and willing to be taught. You see, remember the Proverbs. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Not Apollos. He's going to receive instruction. Proverbs 9, 9, give instruction to a wise man and he will be wise, he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase in learning. Again, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. We read in Psalm 86. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Eleven times in Psalm 119, those 176 verses, eleven times, teach me, teach me, teach me. Apollos is willing to be taught. He has a character quality of being willing to receive instruction. Now, I don't know what it is, but I've been privileged to know a lot of theologians, or not a lot, a few, from the UK, uh, the United Kingdom, England, uh, Scotland, Ireland, Wales. Um, I've known some of them just through their writings because they're dead and gone. But some are living. And, and what's amazing to me is these men who are towering scholars and yet are so teachable. They're so eager to learn. I, I remember an interview with uh, J.I. Packer. I mean, here's, here's a man who's just, he, who towers over all of us in many ways. And yet he was like a little child, eager to learn the ways of the Lord at his old advanced age. Think of Sinclair Ferguson, those of us that watch some of his teaching series. Incredibly competent, incredibly, and yet humble, wanting to learn and grow. When I served on the staff of the Navigators, they, were, they told me they were looking for people who were fat. I took a look in the mirror and I'm like, do I qualify? No, they were talking about people that are faithful, available, teachable. I didn't know yet if I was faithful. I was available. I had nothing else to do. Was I teachable? Was I teachable? It's a good question to ask yourself. Are you teachable? Are you teachable? You know, competence is important, yes, but character is far more important because as many people have said, character is destiny, right? You cannot ignore character in leadership, in the church, in business, in government, in politics. Character is destiny, and kids, you know the deal about the do and the be, right? The Christian life is be, do, be, do, be, do, not do, be, do, be, do, right? Because you do because of who you be. The be 
is way more important than the do. Character is destiny. Remember what Paul says to the Galatian church. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. I'm scared about for what I'm about to say, but some of you have heard the story. There was a man um, in the United Kingdom who was a well-known Reformed scholar who many of us looked up to and in fact wrote a book entitled The Doctrine of Sin. But a few years ago, his double life was exposed, a life that he had hidden away from everybody. And when that was exposed, instead of running to the Lord for forgiveness, and he may have, we don't know, he took his own life. Character. And in this case, it's the humble character to be taught. By who? Priscilla and Aquila. Who are they? Educated? Erudite people? No. What? Tent makers, leather workers, Jews who had sort of moved out of Rome, had hit to Corinth or in Ephesus. Because... It's not just the character here of Apollos that's important. It's the character of Priscilla and Aquila. Again, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. All the commentators see this is they took him aside. They took him back to their home. They offered hospitality. They didn't ignore what he was teaching, but they certainly didn't embarrass him publicly. They were wise. They were discreet. They were private. And most likely, the conversation in the living room at their house did not start off like this. Hey, Apollos, you are wrong. You are really mistaken, Apollos. Guess how well that conversation would have gone. We don't have the recording of their conversation, but great things came out of it, didn't it? You see, it wasn't with a manner of intellectual aggression, but rather of gentle persuasion that they reflected Jesus, the servant of the Lord, and they joined the company of all those teachers who follow Jesus, remember, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, Jesus said. We're called to follow in the manner of our Lord's teaching. We see his competence, it's top notch. We see his character, especially in being willing and able to be taught by a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. What humility. And look at what that led to, this great calling. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. It's an unmistakable mark of a Christian. Uh, The body recognizes and encourages him. There's an internal call. He wants to go and there's an external call. He's encouraged to go and he receives a letter of commendation. 
And what was the focus of his teaching ministry? We see it at the very end, showing by the scriptures that the Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. It sounds just like Paul, right? No wonder Paul can say he and Apollos are one. Now, we had a summary statement of, of Paul's mission, right? Strengthening, what was it? Strengthening the, um, the uh, brothers, strengthening the churches. Well, here's the summary statement of Apollos' mission while he's in Corinth. He greatly helped those who through grace believed. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had Believed. Now that's a great diagnostic question for us as a church, isn't it? Are we helping those who through grace have believed? What a great question to ask ourselves. Are we individually, as families, collectively, corporately, are we helping those who through effort on their own, have believed? Through family lineage, have believed? No, through grace, have believed. And so when you combine these two summary statements, this is what you get. Ministers or servants strengthen disciples and greatly help disciples. And who are disciples? They're people who through grace have believed. If that is true of who disciples are, does that not shape our ministry to them as well? And that's why I'm excited about the book, Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners, who through grace have believed. So what's happening in these 10 verses? What's happening in this odd way kind of to end chapter 18? Paul's planting. Paul, Apollos is watering. But God, of course, is giving the growth. And how was it happening? How did God give the growth? Great question to ask. Through his servants, right? The invisible God works behind the scenes in the lives of people to work, to labor. How was it happening? How did God give the growth through his servants? How about Paul? How about Apollos? How about Priscilla, Aquila? Through his servants, yes, but also, as I mentioned, through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. And we've seen that all through Acts, haven't we? The powerful presence of the Holy Spirit. The powerful working of the Holy Spirit. Changing hearts. Changing lives. I'm so glad this passage is in Acts. So glad. I was tempted to skip over it. Just let's get to the good stuff in Ephesus, right? Are you kidding? What rich food for us to see the church being strengthened, the church being helped. My friends, as we labor here at Grace and Peace, may, be, may God be pleased to continue to build a church 
that is faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that indeed all scripture is God-breathed. And we thank you, Father, for this narrative account that you desired to be preserved and included in the book of Acts. And Father, we are better people because of it. Because we have a, a, a better understanding of your ways in the world and your ways with people. Oh, Father, may we be people here who are not only competent to teach one another, but may we be also possessing the character, the growing character to be taught by one another as you work through your people. Oh, Father, may we in our old age still be desiring to learn and to grow in both the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.